Welcome to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I unlock the mysteries of the beatific vision of God. This is the ancient yet ever-present path of discovering your inner freedom and unlimited potential to achieve your goals now. Check the episode description for a link to the podcast page at logosofexperienceandtruth.com where you can navigate this episode with time-stamped show notes. Let us begin. Welcome back to discussing the mysteries of the Logos of Experience and Truth. We spent quite a bit of time dancing around the idea of truth itself over the past two episodes. And though I don't want to get political on this episode, it's certainly on my mind as it is with everybody else with today being the 6th of November, 2020. I ended the last discussion hinting at further experiences regarding the spiritual rebirth the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire, and the physical experiences that occur from this, that they are not just in the mind, but are actually felt and experienced physically, and how the experience of this leads one, and more specifically, has led me to see an absolutely incredible beyond just faith and into actual reality truth regarding essentially everything in the Gospels about the life of our Lord Jesus the Christ. Keep that in mind. Physical experiences not just mental visionary imagery, but physical. Now yes, there's that obvious question, well aren't you a Christian? Shouldn't you believe in this already? Well yes, Mr. or Miss Non-Christian, but when does belief begin from non-belief? And when does belief become true faith? And when does true faith become factual reality? These are movements within, the change, again the stages of moving towards believing in something so powerfully that it enters or becomes fact and reality. As a mystic, as one that has experienced the visionary sights I've spoken of, along with mentioning the spiritual rebirth that occurs physically within the body, exactly as Christ said, from within, I am astonished at the truth of the stigmata experience, since from my eyes, my viewpoint, the depth of belief that St. Francis of Assisi and Padre Pio, to name a few, had in seeing themselves as disciples of Christ in the physical sense, is utterly beyond astonishing, the merging of belief into reality. As a contrast, for instance, I'm not a feeder of the poor. I'm not a clother of the naked. I'm not a physical, hands-on type of Catholic Christian. I don't act out my faith physically. I'm an entirely mental, inquisitive examiner of words and ideas and concepts. The closest gospel saying that resonates with me and what I seem to do and the works of faith I seem to follow are found in Matthew 13, 51, 52. Do you understand all these things? They answered, yes. And he replied, then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings from his storeroom both the old and the new. Yet even here, like I said, I'm not an apologist or a theologian not even a philosopher, I would say, since I'm not pushing anything new forward into any of these realms, just seeing them deeply for what they are through the lens of one that has had mental, internal, spiritual, intellectual, mystical experience, which is why I didn't have anything occur to me physically beyond the spiritual rebirth from within, which is no slouch by any stretch of the imagination, since I can literally tell you how, literally, how a virgin, the Virgin Mary, could have, did, become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And yes, 
I will describe it in detail when I describe those peculiar physical sensations that course through the body that literally, not just a faith statement anymore, literally could impregnate a virgin. Obviously, if it's deemed by God, as was with the Virgin Mary, if she had this same experience, which the Virgin Mary most certainly did. Or at least, that's the conclusion I've reached. For there's no other explanation I can give after contemplating the physical experiences that occur, and this from the point of view of a man experiencing this. And though, yes, Jesus does mention the internal spiritual rebirth in the Gospel of John to Nicodemus, and even though, yes, renewal of the self, the mind, the soul was incredibly important to Jesus, he also spent a massive amount of time physically healing, physically being a physician to those around him, which is what St. Francis and all those saints that have received the stigmata emulated at an exponential rate. Now, I'm an intensely mental person, so though I had the mystical enfoldment and the testing by God, in all of which I've paraphrased and will further explain the details over time, this was all internal and not physical, other than the spiritual rebirth by the fires of the Holy Spirit. The physical, hands-on Christianity is, as I've mentioned, my vocation in marriage, which I'll speak more about in a bit. This is what I want to get across right now, and we'll dive further into this. The saint's belief in the emulation and identification with and alongside Jesus, specifically of those saints that have received the stigmata, their emulation physically was so powerful that it brought their faith in Jesus mystically into reality, the physical reality through their works, and it was so in-depth, so overpowering over and across their mind that it brought the gift of the Holy Spirit into the physical realm with the signs of the stigmata. Up until this point, from what I've been able to gather, all mystical experience was of the internal kind, the philosophical kind. But this, this was something new. This is the body also being raised to that divine status we discussed in the last episode, which is rooted in the physical ascension of the Master, of Christ. For comparison's sake, this is essentially what Catholics believe is occurring a billion times a day with the Holy Eucharist and the power of the priest's prayer when they say the blessing that essentially calls down the Holy Spirit to transubstantiate the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. So this concept shouldn't be a foreign idea to the practicing Catholic, but as I stated before, these types of connections to the Holy Spirit can't just be for the religious persons and their vocation, but also have to be present for married persons and their vocation which is what my journey of understanding seems to have been all about. I feel terrible that I can't actually remember if it was the priest during my marriage prep classes that said it, or the priest that married my wife and I, or even if I just heard it on Catholic Answers or something during this time, but I am about 95% sure it was the father that married my wife and I that posed the challenge, question, reality, and truth about marriage being a vocation and spiritually ordained by God. If you don't understand what this vocation business is, it just means that one's faith is acted out or realized within their station in life. And obviously in the church, you're either a religious person, so think priest, clergy, nun, cardinal, pope, or you are not, and are a husband or a wife, a father or a mother. But that marriage itself is a ministry of faith. It's just between two people, the husband and the wife, and any that observe or are part of it that are challenged and are changed by the manner in which the husband and the wife are married. But that's in the external. As I said, I'm a mental person. So while all of that was occurring, inner depth and contemplation about marriage was always occurring. And it began at this nexus point. This is what the priest said. And it's never left my contemplating mind since. He said that the keys to the kingdom of heaven are found in your vocation. 
and that marriage should be treated thusly. And I've simply spent the last 14 years of my spiritual journey trying to understand how this is so. And when we get to the spiritual rebirth, to the blessing of the Holy Spirit, and why Holy Spirit was feminine to me, I'll definitely provide many a theory on why this occurred, and why this is also rooted in what we began to touch upon in the last episode, the mystery of the male and the female, the right and the left, or the duality of physical nature and physical reality at its core, and that this male and female, or gender, the apparent reality of binary opposites that are endlessly attracted to one another, is at the basis and foundation of reality, which I already mentioned, the trinity of creation in the atom, of proton the positive, electron the negative, and neutron the base, or that which contains both charges, and no charge at one and the same time, or the father, and the son is the proton, the Holy Spirit is the electron. Or in the old way of seeing this binary duality, Apollo is the sun, or positive daytime energy, and Artemis is the moon, or negative nighttime energy, or the male, the sun, and the female, the moon. This exists inside of us as well, and I will continue to unpack this, though I've already given many hints regarding this depth inside of ourselves. So keep this in mind, along with looking up the scriptures we've already mentioned from both Jesus and St. Paul that have to do with gender, and that in the kingdom of heaven, there no longer is gender, while there still is gender, for all are one in Christ, and that this refers to and means much more than anything having to do with the external physical sexual gender, just as I said that when mystical texts speak of nakedness, that this has nothing to do with external clothing. So all of this talk about belief becoming real brings up what many, many books speak about nowadays, some with genuine wisdom, others not so much so, the power of thought itself to shape our reality, since in essence, that's what the saints mentioned achieved within themselves, that which brought about the stigmata, belief in Christ, in sharing in the cross, in the wounds of Christ, by carrying one's own cross, so powerfully that it manifested into physical reality. When I gave the overview or the summarizing of the phases or stages of the mystical experience, I stated that self-realization or enlightenment, at least for me, was tied to being comfortable with paradox the greatest of which is the paradox of the physical and the mental somehow coexisting, the body and the mind, the internal and the external, the macrocosm of the universe outside, the microcosm of the universe within, the apparent dualistic reality we just spoke about, etc. This is the land and realm of the mystic, for it is in this dancing between the illusion of the maya that exists within and without, which we already spoke about, using neurological terms of how the senses are transmitted from their location or point of sensory origin through the nervous system into the brain, processed and interpreted by both the brain through previous experience and then the mind with the expected or previously preconditioned experience to produce whatever the interpretation of that experience is to the individual experiencing the experience. But then there's the mystery of if you change your mind somehow and impress upon your brain a different understanding of that conditioned and expected experience, then it can change and alter the experience itself in addition to how the brain gives its initial interpretation or report of what it's processed from the sensory detail from the sensory location. What does this mean or can we word this in an easier manner? It means that fact can be based on fiction and fiction can be based on fact. At any point, both can be real 
and be factual, even if it doesn't occur in the external physical world. If one believes that it did, then that external fiction becomes fact in the internal mental world or in the reverse, that internal fiction can become fact in the external world and that this can be altered through the entire neurological framework just described to where hopefully you can understand or at least gleam the reliable unreliability of that which we see and experience. Let's use some examples. I sang this little childhood schoolyard jingle to my daughters the other day and got a laugh from them, so I won't say the entirety of it. If you see London and I see France, yet both are visible, then what is determining what you see as London versus what I see as France? Let's examine briefly the scientific manner in which they came across this enigma. Now again, the last time I read about this, what I will discuss is where the science was or the conclusions the scientists had reached at that point. So I don't know if anything has changed since then. So scientists encountered this paradox with the mystery of why light was sometimes a particle and sometimes a wave. It wasn't until they were all in the same room, I imagine, with multiple scientists observing this. But I remember the study itself with each scientist seeing something different when peering through the microscope with nothing different changed or altered within the controlled environment that would give reason for one seeing a wave and another seeing a particle. When finally, one genius in the room thought of asking, what does each person, capital letters here for emphasis, think and or believe they are going to see? And lo and behold, those that believed they were going to see a particle saw a particle. Those that believed they were going to see a wave saw a wave. Please let that sink in if it hasn't already. What you believe you are going to see in the external world is that which you are going to see in the external world because you've already determined and or believed that that's what you're going to see and or experience. Let that sink in some more as I try to remember another example. And as you internalize the implications of this alongside why consciousness enters the mind of a baby in the womb and why perhaps we gestate for the length of time we gestate inside of the womb where the mind is already creating the world it's going to see before it's even exited the womb. So let's use an example that's rather humorous from the religious side. You remember when it was in the news that somebody had claimed the holy relic of sorts, a miracle, that the face of Jesus had appeared on a piece of toast. So let's try to see each of the elements that either make this image appear as the face of Jesus or not, beyond that you have to have eyes to see and the ability to read the news or use language and that kind of stuff, since that's assumed and a given as requirements. You have to know the story of Jesus, number one, of course. Then you have to have seen images of Jesus produced and associated whatever image that was seen on the piece of toast as the same image that was created by artists. In addition to you having come to believe that the artistic image you've seen is what Jesus looked like or as what Jesus looked like in the past. Then you have to believe in signs and miracles and such things as that in order to believe that the face of Jesus could miraculously appear on a piece of toast. So the person that saw the face of Jesus on that piece of toast these are the types of assumptions required of that person to have believed to have seen this on that piece of toast. Now, whatever was on the toast, who knows what was originally on it, but considering what the person saw and believed was on it already conditions or predetermines what the image looks like, not just in that original person's mind, but in the mind of any others that the person tells. Because I'm almost positive that before showing that piece of toast to another person, 
they would have told that person what they themselves saw on that piece of toast prior to showing said piece of toast. And thus, their belief in what they were seeing on the piece of toast is verbally conveyed to another, which instantly begins conditioning that mind towards what it is expecting to see, based again on that same previously preconditioned mental storehouse surrounding the imagery seen and believed and accepted as the visual representation of Jesus. And if that same historical and artistic image and idea of Jesus in the new observer matches the toast wielder's worldview, then that next person will have a much greater chance of also seeing the same image of Jesus on that piece of toast, both because of what they may or may not have seen prior regarding Jesus, but also because of the preconditioning that has entered their observing mind by the toast wielder saying that the image of Jesus is on his piece of toast prior to showing the piece of toast. Hey bro, do you think this looks like the face of Jesus on this piece of toast? Oh dang, that does look like Jesus. Or something of that order. This is what is meant by all the YouTube videos and all the self-help books that try to speak about this aspect to the truth of our reality. That's why both Aristotle and Plato are right and wrong, just as purely left or purely right science and religion, which I don't really think actually exists out there, though I may be off the mark. They are both right and wrong on what is real, whether the external or the internal, what is true, the truth, the external or the internal, that which is seen with the eyes and experienced with the senses, Aristotle, or that which is thought or believed to have been seen with the eyes or the senses, or the foundation that exists in the mind, within the real version of that which is seen, Plato. And unfortunately, what science has done since the scientific revolution is try to frown upon the subjective experience of experience, and that one should only be objective towards the experience of that which is external, or science. But this is utterly ridiculous and impossible. No matter how hard one tries to be purely objective, you cannot escape the truth and reality of your own subjectivity. And the very fact they are attempting to be purely objective is itself an internal preconditioned belief rooted in their own subjectivity that they are striving for in this imagined pure objectivity. And that not only do they believe this to be possible, but that they are adhering to it somehow and believe they are achieving this fabled scientific objectivity somehow without the subjective nature of their own mental preconditioning, conditioning their scientific dogmatic belief system about scientific objectivity as being somehow factual in and during the reality and or experience of whatever is being observed in a scientific manner. Thankfully, neurology is helping this out and returning the subjective reality or the observer's observation or what we think and feel about what we're observing into the merging and mixing of that which is being observed as the example of light being a wave or a particle being utterly dependent on what one believes prior to sticking their eyes into the microscope to look and that this is the determining factor of what one will see versus another when presented with the binary dualistic appearance of reality. Now I thought that up quickly and off the top of my head so if I miss some points I'll try to pick them back up as I keep yapping away. Because if this isn't exploding your brain open, if I haven't already with the previous episodes, hopefully now you can see not just the path of the mystic, but the eyes of the mystic as well. And the ability of being able to dance both within the maya or illusion of that which exists around and inside of us, the true world that needs to be destroyed and renewed and reborn the illusory world within that gets annihilated in the apocalypse and then the new life spiritually reborn from within and thus by knowing the illusion, the mystic also knows the path to the actual, the really real, the true, beyond this, the world of mental forms. 
If you remember the episode where I asked you to question if you've ever had your own thought, what we've just discussed is the nexus of that. That is why going beyond that, beyond thought, and into the realm of the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao, and an interesting comparison, the Quran that can be read is not the true Quran. That type of language that discusses that which is beyond language, since what language represents is the forms in the mind. When you enter into this realm that dwells beyond language, inside of your own mind and heart, that is when you are near to the throne of God, that which is at the foundation or the beginning of all of this. And thus, hopefully again, to any skeptics, scientists, agnostics, atheists that are still listening, hopefully now you're beginning to understand the absolute power of faith and belief, and why belief isn't some type of mental health issue. If we remember the truest potential self that exists, as this ball of neurologically transmitting electrical energy and data within our nervous and brain systems, and that somewhere in this is the mind, and that what it, the brain, perceives through the senses is as unreliable as it is reliable, since what one person on the left senses, sees, smells, tastes, feels, can be as utterly different as what one person on the right senses, sees, smells, tastes, feels, then that which can enact change into this inner matrix is either a clockwork orange type of 10-hour-a-day conditioning through the faculties, which is still just more of this dwelling within the maya, the illusion, or the seeking of faith and truth, and that which dwells beyond this and is the power, is that which can utterly change how one senses, sees, smells, tastes, feels, and that this, since as we've said, the search for God, is also the search for the self. Is the true self, the self that existed prior to the external conditioning of the world inside the mind, by the world outside of the mind, since the true self is pure consciousness made in the image of God, where the false or fallen self is made in the image of the world, and thus this is the search for freedom from being conditioned willy-nilly by any external conditioning force imposed upon by another by something in the external attempting to influence in the internal, and instead seeking for what one truly desires or how one truly wishes to sense, see, smell, taste, feel, and most importantly, how one truly desires to think about and experience this experience of life without any unwanted external influences, only allowing those influences desired to enter into the female mind, the receiving mind, by defending her with the male mind or the giving mind. Those that are versed in the biblical texts should be seeing some of that Old Testament language floating around in their heads by now of the harlot Israel parading about with all the other lovers or idols, abandoning her true Lord and King God. The masters that wrote those texts or were inspired to proclaim and write these texts were experts at layering the meaning of that which was occurring in the external with that which was occurring in the internal. If your mind has a goal, Yet that goal is constantly changing and chasing after the shiny new next goal that appears to tempt you away from that original goal, then the mind, the receiving mind, has become like a harlot, giving herself over to any and every new lover. But if you return to God, or your true self, or your right mind, God restores order to Israel, or the soul, or the mind, however you want to interpret what Israel symbolizes beyond an external nation. And when you return to God, the true self, God forgives the mind's harlotry. Am I reaching any of you dear listeners? Are the depths of understanding, wisdom, and mystery found in our Bible 
beyond the external physical stories beginning to peel away. So I only say this here in regards to the elections, politics in general, media specifically, and then we'll move forward with these concepts and how and why I spoke regarding the gospel accounts of the apostles and why I gave three different potential interpretations of the text. Again, since I can comfortably see these potentialities without harming my own belief because the depth of my belief goes beyond the concept of belief itself. I read in the news a year ago or so that the average American consumes close to 8 to 10 hours of media, which is dominated mostly now with social media, in a day. 10 hours. I don't even know how that's possible considering the average 8-hour workday, but obviously it means people are spending a whole heaping amount of time on their phones at work. But 10 hours? And if those 10 hours are spent watching nothing but the news, and even further, if those 10 hours are spent only watching the news of one side versus another, without ever comparing and contrasting the left or the right, then what do you think the outcome of one's mind, their mental perceptions of the world, not just around them, but the world inside of their own mind, what will become of such a mind, especially of that 10-hour-a-day media consumer, never pauses to actually think for themselves, but simply accepts whatever they're being told because they don't know how to think for themselves since they're never given a chance to think for themselves unless it's rooted in American consumerism, which even then, are you really making your own non-influenced choice? In fact, it seems like that's exactly what the media doesn't want from the public. They don't seem to want us to think for ourselves, regardless of whether or not they say that we need to think for ourselves, since the reality is that if you stare at the news and all the media they produce and the social media commentary that has somehow become the news as well, if you stare at this for 10 hours a day, every day, weekly, monthly, yearly, watching and listening endlessly to tabloid opinion speech parading and pretending to be actual journalism, you are going to believe in whatever it is you are being told. Again, whether factual or not, since gossip and opinion has a way of taking on a life of its own inside of one's mind. I'm sure very few remember the Steele dossier and everything that surrounded that back when Trump was first elected. Of course, not if you were or are a Democrat, since it's not like your media was plastering their own news sites, your news sites, with this story 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, when it was determined that it had been funded by the Clinton campaign. Up until that, all that was spoken of in regards to the Steele dossier in the news was the whole golden showers thing, that Trump had paid Russian prostitutes to piss on him or for him to pee on them, I can't remember who was supposedly the one doing or receiving the peeing, in addition to this occurring on a bed in a room in Russia that Obama had stayed in or something to that order. And man, one side of the news ran with this endlessly, with God rest his soul, poor Senator McCain being duped somehow into handing this story innocently over to Comey's FBI and somehow the dossier leaving the FBI's hand and suddenly becoming public knowledge. And all I remember doing was thinking for myself not listening to what the news was saying, but thinking to myself. Does Trump strike me as the kind of guy that would want prostitutes to piss on him in some weird sexual manner, or this happening in the reverse? And in no way, shape, or form could I rationally think this to be true based on his character. But that's because I thought about it to myself and didn't spend 10 hours a day for weeks on end listening to the media voices speak endlessly about it and everything else they talk about, potentializing this story and every other tabloid story as a possibility 
or potentiality as if any or all of them could be factual in their opinionated hypothetical manner since just talking about it in this manner accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish. It causes belief in the mind of viewers or listeners. Those that don't have a moat and an armored castle wall within their mind protecting them from such hypothetical theory-based courtroom leading the witness type tabloid opinion talk. The mind wants to believe one way or another. And the more it gets of one viewpoint, the more likely it's going to accept the reality it's being given and believe in it, whether factual or not. And the media, especially a billion times more so since social media, conditions and pounds the mind into utter submission to whatever worldview this side or that side. Those with the power or will and a lack of morality and care for the mind of their human brothers and sisters, those with endless financial resources, those that have the capability to do this at least, along with their own mental capacity to plan and force, without forcing, whatever idea or worldview is desired to be imposed upon the populace. So if you remove yourself from listening to the news, it will literally feel like you're undoing an addiction, especially if you are one of these 8-10 to 10 hour a day consumers of media, especially news tabloid media that has essentially lost all credibility over the last who knows how many years, but especially since Trump announced his presidency. The first day is easy not to look at the news. Second day you start to itch, start thinking about it and wanting to look at it. And the third day your mind starts rampaging in its desire for the return to its addiction. But if you stick with it, your mind suddenly detaches from whatever that worldview is that has been generated in your mind, conditioned by the conditioning mental forces outside your brain that you have now allowed inside your brain. And then when you return and peek at the news, holy shit does the truth of what one side does, or is doing, or has been doing to the other side, readily become apparent. And this is why our country is the way it is right now. We're not on the verge of civil war. We are in a civil war. It's just being fought through the media. It's an information civil war. And the more you give your mind over to the media, the more they groom each individual into being their influencer among others, injecting a pyramid scheme method of transmitting their worldview among others through the hijacking of each individual mind that's plugged in, in this manner, like a spreading virus from one mind to the next. I urge you to rewatch The Matrix because if you are one of the average of Americans spending 10 hours a day on social media and media outlets, then you are trapped inside of The Matrix and are not free to freely make decisions as a free citizen, even if you are told you are free, but are being directed to make decisions based on what the actual political party, the actual political power, the media says. In fact, the media as a whole should probably register as its own political power and entity since what is greater in this country now than what the almighty media gods and their demigod celebrities say to you? Those that are attached to and trapped within this matrix of never-ending opinionated gossip that poses as news and information. Did you even choose which side you were on? Or were you conditioned for it since birth? Since elementary school? Since high school? Since college? Have you once stopped to think why you believe in the left or the right? Or are you simply on autopilot ever since social media took over your mind if you are an American that spends this much time on media, especially social media? I don't want to get into conspiracy stuff, but there are interesting nuggets of truth that you can sometimes find within a conspiracy. Back in the 60s and 70s, due to things done on television in the 50s, I think, there were tons of studies on the harmful, subversive mind control effects of subliminal advertising and messaging because advertisers were sneaking things into ads in this subliminal manner. 
If you want a modern joke version of this, watch the Family Guy episode from the first one or two seasons, I think, when Peter becomes a big wig in a cigarette company, and they show a cigarette ad they've just produced, and the ad cuts quickly from the box of the cigarette or the lit cigarette or something like that. I can't remember exactly. There's some guy saying smoke, and then it cuts away back to the image of the cigarette box. Since this is a joke, it's slow and in your face. But back in the 50s and 60s, you could barely perceive it. But everybody that watched these type of subliminal ads knew there was something weird they'd just seen, but couldn't quite place it. This is what that Manchurian Candidate movie and the idea behind it is based on. I'm also thinking of that scene in Fight Club when the Ed Norton character, since you never actually really learn if his true name is Tyler Durden or not, is explaining splicing porno images into kid movies, and that even though it's just a flash of an image, it still implants itself into the mind of the viewer. The point is that those were just flashes of images in a 20 to 30 second commercial. And what's interesting is there were so many studies about this and then, all of a sudden, they all stopped. And there hasn't really been a single study on this, whether mind control is possible through this type of subliminal conditioning since then, since books and movies like Clockwork Orange, etc. Not even with the internet and social media literally hijacking the mind of the planet, especially planet America. And why would this be? Why do you think this? Because the studies provided the answer. And the answer was yes. Especially when you consider something President Nixon said during this exact same time period. And hopefully you understand what I'm getting at here. He's quoted as saying that Americans don't believe anything unless they've seen it on television. Let that sink in because that was in the 70s and that was when all there was was radio and television. If you can understand this, then you can see just how much more astronomically true that statement by the president of the United States of America is now with the power of the world's media in the palm of your hand. That's all I'll speak about regarding media, elections, politics. I had gone two months entirely without looking at the news once leading up to the elections, and now it's been a couple days looking here and there, and I'm already done once more. I hadn't felt a single headache during that entire time, and then the other day was feeling a little weird in my head. So adios. It's not that politics don't interest me. It's not that I'm not interested in the direction of the country and what's going to be done and how it will affect me as a citizen. But I am not interested in how the media wants to condition my mind into thinking about politics in the manner and worldview in which it wants me to think and see the world around me. Since if you can't see how biased the media is, then that's how ingrained your mind is into the worldview you're being provided, regardless of whether it is true or not. Remember, you believe what you want to believe and what you yourself have chosen to believe in, like Christ or Christianity or the belief in inner freedom and true choice, or you believe what you're told and conditioned to believe, whether you know you're being told or conditioned to believe one way or another. If you've entered into truth, the truth, and can change what you believe essentially at will if desired, you can watch as the world around you slowly changes, for you have been changed first. Remember Michael Jackson's song, Man in the Mirror? If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change. You can only change the world by changing yourself, starting that change with yourself. And this is just a modern rendition of Jesus' so-so powerful teaching of why see and try to remove the speck in your brother's eye when there is a log in your eye. Remove the log from your eye first, and then perhaps you can help your brother remove the speck from his eye. Anytime this is done the other way around, it's the hilarious saying of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas. If a blind person leads a blind person, 
both of them will fall into a hole. For the mind makes whatever it is conditioned to see and believe real, whether really real in the external world or not, and just really real in the imagination and mind, just like Morpheus tells Neo in The Matrix. I choose to believe that the true self within is made in the image of God and is the image of Christ, the Word Himself, and in this is eternal freedom, both in the next world and while still dwelling in this world. Even if you're told this tale, it doesn't mean you actually believe it. One must still walk the narrow path to find it. And if you have no idea what I'm even talking about, I have no idea how you've listened to this many episodes. But perhaps your mind is opening up to the truth of that which dwells within your own mind and heart and soul. Let us return then to using this exact same knowledge and the concepts therein to address how I spoke regarding the gospel accounts and whether or not they are legendary or factual. I hinted at a bit of this in a previous episode when I was talking about Moses and the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, but the same applies to pretty much any and all religious, spiritual, mythical type texts, especially if at their root they provide some aspect to and are showing the steps along the path to the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at the many potential layers of the gospel accounts once more as we try to find that which is the most true statement we can say regarding them. First, they could be entirely legendary figures based on entirely mythological texts and in fact are some type of ancient novel with everything written within the text being entirely fictional and made up like the myths of old, Jason and the Argonauts and stories like that. Second, there could be a bit of nonfiction within the fiction. For instance, when you read the Gospel of Luke, the same story in Luke as contrasted with Mark or Matthew will typically have a name for the blind person or a name for the this or the that person, which leads one to assume that perhaps the writer of Luke knew the name for the person in the Gospel account, whether true or not. But while inquiring on the stories of and surrounding Christ, if the writer of the Gospel was given a name, the name was inserted into the Gospel account. Kind of like what we'd imagine we're reading in a news story, in an actual journalistic news story where the name of, let's say, an expert is given instead of their simply being quoted in the text. Experts say. So as I said, as a possibility in this realm, perhaps the names mentioned and mentioned frequently, like the apostles Peter, James, and John, or when there are names for the blind person or this or that person, it's probable that the writers of the Gospels knew those names from the stories themselves that had been handed down or from eyewitness accounts in the gathering of said stories, or something to that degree, rather than inventing them as in a literary piece. Next are the traditional accounts of the Gospels, that these are entirely the recorded sayings and teachings and accounts of Jesus and his disciples, and all the names therein are entirely true and factual. How you view the text is of course entirely up to you, based on whatever study you've done on the composition of the text. That Mark is most certainly the first Gospel, with Matthew and Luke coming next, since both Matthew and Luke have word for word some of the same gospel accounts found in Mark, which means, like a student writing a paper in school, they probably quoted Mark in their own work as a source. But then both Matthew and Luke have different sayings, which means they each separately, probably, had another source they were quoting like in a student paper. And then the last gospel written is John, and that one is just super wacky mystical talk compared to the others. But the four combined show an increasing degree of how Christ was viewed, since in the earliest gospel texts of Mark, as well as in St. Paul, which are the earliest writings in the New Testament, not the Gospels, even though the Gospels are in the front of the New Testament, Christ is viewed as reaching divine status at his death and resurrection, and divine mission at his baptism. Then in Matthew and Luke, which are the ones with the nativity narratives, Jesus had divine status at the incarnation and at birth. 
And then in John, he was always divine as the Word, and Logos always since eternity as the mind and Word of God. Your level of belief in the stories themselves is entirely up to you, of course, but we are leaving one thing out of this, something that was so strange that I'd never even considered during the long years through the desert of the soul in regards to these texts, and again, it runs alongside when I discuss the pure faith that I had to find and the purely human reason behind that faith rooted in exactly what the Christian message hinges on, the testimony of the apostles and what they witnessed and saw occur on the third day. Whoever wrote the Bible texts, the Gospels, believed in them. Whoever those writers were, knew the narrow or mystical path and all its movements, and wrote them down. So even if you don't believe at all that any of what's in the Gospels is factual, yet a factual person, a factual human being, like me and you, wrote them down, even if from imagination, with the knowledge and the wisdom of the ancient world, the Old Testament in particular. Yet that master scribe knew what they were writing, knew and believed in it, either factually having been factual, or that the story itself, if story itself, was still so powerful that it could change the lives of those that also read, heard, or listened to it, and if they believed that it was real. The writers of these texts knew the truth of the illusion of the world within the fallen mind, and the truth of the real world in the redeemed mind the mind of the new world, or the mind reborn in the kingdom of heaven. They knew this truth, and they wrote down that truth, and either everything in the New Testament is true or isn't. But for the writers that wrote them, if it wasn't true, then they wrote with such a knowledge of the mysteries so as to change the world. And if they are based on at least the factual reality of there having been a teacher named Jesus that had disciples, and that those disciples fanned out and spoke what Jesus spoke, and the writers of the text embellished the stories, yet they did so from the knowledge of this interior world and the path towards finding God. But then if the stories are true, entirely, with just a little embellishment to fill the story out, like what any nonfiction writer would and or should instantly admit to doing in their nonfiction work, since you have to, there's no way to write nonfiction without a little bit of fiction, just as you can't write fiction without nonfiction. Even if the story in fiction is fiction, everything within that fiction is still based on the human experience, which is very non-fiction and real. This would mean then that not only was what was witnessed by the apostles handed down and factual, but the writers were also masters of their craft, understood the mysteries for Jesus taught the mysteries, and lived the mysteries for our sake. Either way, the stories we have, the Gospels, the New Testament writings, are still entirely from the mind of the writers that put them down, and they believed and were changed by their belief and hoped that all that would come to Christ would be changed and spiritually reborn as well, a very human and a very real and the most true statement one can make regarding the Gospels and the New Testament. How I will end this is by telling you a secret. It may already be apparent to some that have listened but I will speak it plainly, especially after having spoken about the saints that receive the stigmata and different ways of viewing the biblical text. If Christ is the Word, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the mind of God, through whom all was made, for God the Father thinks the world into existence, and that power of his thought is Christ eternal. And if we are made in the image of this Christ, this Word, this Logos, and if this image of Christ is actually and truly our true self, then when you read the gospel accounts, 
When you read the Bible, you are supposed to identify yourself mentally as Christ in the gospel narrative. You are supposed to become Christ in your mind while reading the gospel narratives. Let me say that again. You are supposed to identify with Christ in the gospel narratives since Christ is your true self when you read the gospel narratives. Christ both represents the true self, if utterly fictional, and is the true self, if utterly real. Either way, Christ is your true self. This is why you have to be comfortable with the text potentially being an entirely fictional account, just as much as you have to believe in the text and the story being entirely real in order for it to explode change and spiritual rebirth within you. For you are in Him, and He is in you, and together you are one with the Father. How else can you be in Him when reading the text or listening to the stories or seeing the artistic depictions than if you are in Him, believing and seeing yourself as Him, as Christ, while experiencing the gospel accounts? Let me word it in another way from the teachings and lessons in conjunction with the path of becoming and being a writer. This is also one of the ways in which the attempt at describing God's relationship to us has been described as well and is very clearly seen and understood if one is a writer or, I would imagine, any other type of artist, that God is like an author. And when God enters into the world he's created, he's both in the world as a character, but also a still creator and master of the entirety of the world as the author, and both has his foot inside and outside of the created world, his creation and created world, and is both every single character in the book and every character is in him, the author, and yet as the author, though he is in all of his characters, and yet each character is an aspect of himself, yet each character isn't equal to him, the author, even if they are like him in some way, since they, the characters, along with the entire world within the created work or world, are made in his image, for it is through his mind, the author, or the creator's mind, that all is made. You're not supposed to be a casual reader of the Bible texts, the New Testament in particular. That's why Jesus scorns the lukewarm believer. You are supposed to read the New Testament with such belief that you become like Jesus by believing that his character within the gospel narratives, if character in a fiction is all Jesus is, that he still represents your true and eternal self. Because if you become like him in his birth and in his passion, the mortal, then so too do you become like him pre-existent and incarnated into this world, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, immortal, dwelling in the kingdom of heaven in eternity. It is a masterwork, the masterwork of Western civilization and quite possibly the masterwork of the entire world. Real, not real, fictional, non-fictional, it doesn't matter for us hearing or reading it. We are not in Jerusalem in 30 AD. We are not visibly seeing Jesus and his apostles. Our manner of belief is entirely from our belief in reading the text and in believing that which has been verbally handed down to us through tradition. You, the reader, or the listener of the stories, or in the time prior to the printing press, the viewer of the gospels told through the stories in the stained glass windows of the churches and cathedrals, you make it real in your mind through belief and faith. And when it does, when you do, the kingdom of heaven is born within you, for you have become one with your true self, with Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, through writings in a book handed down to us from verbal stories told through the traditions 2,000 years ago. 
So try to read the gospel narrative again with this viewpoint. And if you can't, and only see yourself as like Peter or Judas or John the Baptist, ask yourself why. Why do you resonate more with one character in the Bible, whether fact or fictional, versus another? And why do you not see yourself as Jesus, just as he is literally commanding you to do by believing in him, that he is the Son of God, by reading the texts, the lines themselves, especially when he turns to his disciples and asks them, who do you say I am? Who is Jesus asking this question of? His disciples that were around him in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Or is he traveling across time, through the pages of history, into your Bible, onto the script of the words in front of you, from the mouth of one telling the story, from the artistic representations of the stories you see all around you, and asking you, here, right now, who do you think I am? And if you ask yourself that question, In the possessive sense, not as mere lines in a text, but as who do I think I am, since Jesus represents himself as the tetragrammaton of I am that I am, and when he asks who do you think I am, he's asking you to ask yourself who do you think I am within your own mind, not who do you think Jesus is, or at least after you've believed Jesus is the Son of God, is the Logos or Word of God, is he in whose image we were made, then reread that question as a question for yourself. Who do you, meaning I, who do I think I am? And if you've believed in the text, understood it, then what should be your answer? I am made in the image of God. I am made in the image of Christ eternal. I am one with the Son of God. I am in the Father as I am in the Son. I am a disciple of Christ, and where the Master is, there shall I dwell as well. And thus you will enter into the kingdom of heaven, if you believe and have faith in Jesus Christ, who is also your true self. Thus, you will enter into the kingdom of heaven, if you believe in yourself, for yourself, your true self, is made in the image of God and is the image of the Logos, of the Christ, and the identification of which is the true question being asked by Jesus' own mouth within the Gospels to you, the observer, listener, reader, and experiencer of the Gospels and the mysteries of the Logos, of the Word, within. And I will leave you with that. Until next time. Thank you for listening. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. I have close to a thousand pictures at logosofexperienceandtruth.com under the vision section that show what is perceived by the human mind during a mystical experience. Every culture across the entirety of time has depicted the experience with the same foundational pattern, including science in modernity. Click the link in the episode description or search for logosofexperienceandtruth.com so you can see for yourself and confirm or refute my claims. Please share this podcast with those that are like-minded and click a like on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you again.